Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Royal Academy of Arts. Uh, my name is Gonzalo Herrero. I'm Architecture Program Curator here at the RA, and today I'm also the chair of the discussion following the presentations. Uh, it's a real pleasure for me to introduce uh, this evening discussion, which is part of a series of debate that we have organized, inspired by the uh, Dali Duchamp exhibition, which is now uh, in open in the main galleries. This series, organized by the architecture department, explores uh, architectural relationships with some of the principles shared by the work of uh, Salvador Dali and Marcel Duchamp, and about the reason of the extraordinary relationship between these two artists. Today, we will explore how sensuality, sexuality, and voyeurism, amongst others, uh, have been a source of inspiration in architecture, as well as it was for the artists Salvador Dali and Marcel Duchamp. It is interesting to mention that the, there was only one architect who formally um, took part in the surrealist movement, that was uh, Frederick Kiesler. However, uh, some contemporaries of Dali and Duchamp, uh, some contemporary architects to Dali and Duchamp, were also interested in surrealism. Just as an example, uh, Le Corbusier collaborated with Dali in, in uh, an unfortunately now demolished project, the Beistegui apartment uh, in Paris. However, the, the erotic dimension of architecture has been the subject of the studies since, in not something contemporary, it has been the subject of the studies since the Middle Ages, uh, both for Western and Eastern cultures, and includes some iconic examples like the 1779 uh, phallic safe House of Pleasure by Claude Nicolas Ledoux. Today, Freudian uh, symbolism and uh, metaphoric interpretation of eroticism in architecture seem to have been left aside by contemporary practitioners to embrace the topic in the framework of today's sexual liberation. Today we have three incredible, like, uh, wonderful speakers. Uh, Penelope Haralambidou, uh, Rosa Ferrer, and Nigel Coates, who will explore the erotic dimension of architecture, both from a historic but also contemporary uh, perspective, and discuss how eroticism is still relevant, uh, uh, a relevant source of inspiration for, for architects. Uh, the structure of the event will start with uh, the three presentations from our three speakers, followed by a discussion and also for some time for a question from the audience. Uh, Dr. Penelope Haralambidou is Senior Lecturer and Coordinator of the Master Unit uh, 24 at the Ballet School of Architecture at the UCL. Her current work, research and teaching lie between architectural design and theory, art practice, curating and experimental film and has been published and exhibited internationally. She has widely contributed to different publications and symposiums, exploring themes such as allegory, figural theory, stereoscopy, and film and architecture. She is the author, and this is the main reason why we invited her to, to join us today, of Marcel Duchamp and the Architecture of Desire, published in 2013, uh, which she will be presenting among uh, some other thoughts. That, will, that book was the, the result of her PhD uh, doctor. <coughs> Through three main aims, allegory, visuality, and desire, this book defines and theorizes an alternative drawing practice, position between art and architecture that predates and includes Dali Duchamp. Include, uh, sorry, Marcel Duchamp. Now, without any further delay, please give a warm welcome to Penelope Haralandidou. for the invitation to take part in this uh, panel to discuss the relationship between eroticism and architecture. 
and uh, we're obviously here with uh, a, a, about the wonderful exhibition of Daniel Duchamp, who includes a magical display of erotic objects in the cabinet of curiosities. So today I will focus my talk on one of the artists, Marcel Duchamp, his use of eroticism, and discuss how these relate to architecture, and more specifically, what I have called the architecture of desire. As he often stressed in interviews, Duchamp was a strong believer in eroticism. He was very interested in the fact that it is widespread and that everyone understands it without speaking of it. He saw eroticism as an animal thing, very close to everyday life, and he thought of it both materially as a tube of paint and as a pervasive philosophy or a school of thought, an ism like romanticism or realism. He thought of eroticism as an ism like romanticism or realism. So indisputably, Duchamp's use of eroticism and double entendre has added to the notoriety of his works and their impact on 20th century art. Nevertheless, the term remained vague and Duchamp never defined it, although that did not stop interpretations by others. Two that I find most interesting and that push the notion of eroticism away from just sexual attraction are from Mark Decimo and Craig Adcock. Decimo connects eroticism with the desire's gaze and the seduction of a revealed truth that happens if only we take the trouble to look. And Adcock links Duchamp's notion of eroticism to his interest in fourth dimensional and non-Euclidean geometry and discovers notions of the hinge and expansion in his gender reversals in Rose la vie and Elasho Q and the topological rotations of his ready-mates. Indeed, eroticism is definitely what guides Duchamp's two major pieces. The large glass, which is an erotic but unconsummated exchange between the domain of the bride above and the bachelors below, and given the waterfall and the illuminating gas, which explores the same theme of voyeurism by adding extra dimensions. It is significant to note that both of these works originated at points in Duchamp's lifetime when he had fallen deeply in love, in both cases with unattainable brides. So eroticism in Duchamp has a strong autobiographical element as well. A lot has been written about Duchamp's use of eroticism, but what about architecture? Duchamp's flirtation with architectural drawing and spatial design seems to have been largely overlooked. However, I believe that this is clearly evident. We can find it in the carefully arranged plans and sections organizing the blueprint of desire in the large glass. His detailed architectural specification for the construction of given in the form of a manual of instructions, which also includes a paper model. His numerous pieces replicating architectural fragments, his reinvention of the typology of the museum in a model that is also a book, and his involvement in designing exhibitions. I would agree that Duchamp was not as much interested in built architecture, uh, but he was interested in the architecture of desire, reconstructing the imagination through drawing, and testing the boundaries between reality and its aesthetic and philosophical possibilities. Obviously, I'm not the first architect that has noticed the link between Duchamp's work, architectural thinking, and eroticism. Bernard Chumi discusses Duchamp's given as a space of desire, 
And Alberto Perez Gomez sees it as a space of participation, which is activated through eros. So in my research on Duchamp and architecture, I have also seen given as a fleshing out of this desirous gaze in the form of a complex allegorical architecture. Most of my research is contained in my book, Marcel Duchamp and the Architecture of Desire, where I employ design, drawing and making the tools of the architect to perform an architectural analysis of Duchamp's given. My practice-led investigation serves a research methodology able to grasp meaning beyond just textual analysis. And this novel reading of his ideas and methods adds to, but also challenges, other art historical interpretations. Through three main themes, desire, but also allegory and visuality, I perform, define, and theorize an alternative drawing practice positioned between art and architecture. Additionally, as I will explain later, I propose this as an alternative practice throughout the history of architectural drawing, which predates, includes, and succeeds Duchamp. The link between the large glass and architectural drawing, although allegorically coded in his notes, is more evident, may I say, transparent. Given could not be more different in form. It is veiled and opaque, but it shares the same themes. It has a very real bride at the center of its conception, Duchamp's lover, Maria Martins, here on the left. On the right is a work dedicated to her, entitled Paysage Fautif, or Faulty Landscape, whose medium chemical analysis disclosed as seminal fluid. So given is definitely the construction of a daydream, an architecture that Duchamp built to house his desire. However, as I argue in my book, like the large glass, it is also a meticulous drawing, which is perhaps even more compellingly architectural. Given is permanently installed in the Philadelphia Museum of Art, and although most might have seen the images related to it, the door and uh, the pornographic view beyond, it is often useful to explain the strange topological arrangement of the piece for someone that has never visited the museum. So this is a spread from my Philadelphia sketchbook where I, when I first visited the, the piece. On the right, we have the vestibule. It's a small room off the main gallery where Given is uh, housed, and uh, the door is placed at the very back. The, the room is dark, and you see light emanating from the peepholes. And on the left, we have the first interface, the door uh, of Given, and it has this alcove at the feet that uh, welcomes the body of the voyeur. On the left, uh, the peepholes, we have the two peepholes and the gap between the two panels uh, which allows the face to go very close to the surface of the door and the door feels as if it's a mask. And on the, on the right is a simple section that shows the three different layers. So we have the layer of the door uh, here with the peepholes and then there is another layer of the wall with a breach and the visual rays cross through that hole and look at the nude which is placed horizontally uh, on a bed of twigs. And at the back we have um, the plane of the landscape. So my reading of Given is as a drawing of the space of desire stems from French philosopher Jean-François Lyotard's observation 
that the mise-en-scene of given is a physical expansion of the abstract diagram of perspective construction by Alberti. And here is Lyotard's sketch of the arrangement of the interior. Here is also in comparison between Alberti's diagram on the right and Duchamp's given on the left. So in Alberti we have a single point of view, a picture plane, a grid that organizes the, the, the composition, which is projected on the picture plane. In given, we have two peepholes, and the two rays cross the breach on the wall, which is the picture plane broken, uh, uh, and cross beyond in the space of the representation uh, in different points within the scene. I, I should add that there is a, an organizing grid at the floor in the form of a plastic liner, which is not visible from the two uh, peepholes. So I hope that it is obvious now that given is a deep space constructed by these three different, but these different elements that may have a link with perspective. But how exactly does given expand the rules of perspective and the Cartesian understanding of vision? This, is, this was the main research question that I tried to answer in my practice-led research, and I will present a very short summary of my process. The start of my investigation is placed on the fact that we have not one but two peepholes. So I started thinking of the stereoscope, a 19th century device that foregrounds normal binocular vision. By merging the two images, the stereoscope offers a sensation of depth beyond perspective, as if the flat image blossoms in our mind. Stereoscopy was linked to pornography, but was also a technique that Duchamp was very fond of. So this is his handmade stereoscopic slide from 1918. He was also an owner of a book of anaglyphs by, by Vubert. So I took two images from the peepholes and created the stereoscopic pair. As we can see, the left image uh, is the one that is usually censored in a way, uh, as it doesn't show the, sh the hair, the lock of, of hair. I then constructed my own wall-mounted stereoscope and when viewed in the stereoscope, the pair of images renders depth and allows the nude to blossom in three dimensions. The study of stereoscopy made me wonder, can this illusory depth be measured and fleshed out in matter? Indeed, stereophotogrammetry, a 20th century technique based on stereoscopy, uses two images to record depth with accuracy. The technique was used during the Second World War to map enemy terrain and give depth through contour lines. I began to think that Duchamp may have used the same technique to record the desired body of his lover. In the visual dimension of depth that stereoscopy of, and then the question appeared, is the visual dimension of depth that stereoscopy offers in addition to the three dimensions of the Cartesian system, and could be thought of as a fourth dimension. Apparently, Duchamp took several stereoscopic images of given during and after construction. So to test this conjecture, I did my own stereophotogrammetric measuring of the nude, its little cross constituting a visual touch of the ethereal body captured in the stereoscopic image and I built a drawing entitled Landscape, where the elevation of each of the touched points of the skin forms a terrain. 
So I have speculated that Duchamp may have used this most peculiar study, uh, which is brilliantly displayed in the gallery uh, on a black background, to print the volume of the recorded stereoscopic image of his lover in vellum. These are two pieces of earlier failed attempts to form the skin that are kept in the Philadelphia Museum of Art. I suggest, therefore, that the construction of the nude might be one of the earliest examples of 3D printing from an entirely visual source. Finally, as a result of my research, the act of looking is a full-scale drawing of the act of looking through Given's peepholes, meticulously plotting points describing the volume of the pornographic scene by hand. The piece was inspired by this woodcut by Salomon de Caus, showing tactile process of drawing in perspective. Here the bride is absent, codified by a constellation of points, marked by metal discs tethering her unattainable visual image in space. Although modeled on Duchamp's assemblage, the act of looking could be seen as a physical diagram of any binocular gaze from a static position and a drawing in matter weaving the architecture of erotic visual space. Therefore, I see given as Duchamp's attempt to define an expanded notion of spatial representation, one that is based in his interest in the fourth dimension of stereoscopy, the forgotten other eye, and what I have described as a blossoming of perspective. But beyond simply signifying given, however, I see the term architecture of desire connected, connected with the mechanics of technical drawing. Drawing in architecture is in anticipation of the thing it describes, the construction of the building. It promotes the development of a sophisticated spatial imagination capable of grasping complex three-dimensional configuration intellectually. The consummation of this intense imagination, however, is disproportionately slow. Unlike art, where the drawing is single, immediate, and an art object in itself, therefore offering the potential for instant pleasure, in architecture, the object, the building, is delayed. Architectural design, therefore, involves a suspension of pleasure that produces desire. The pleasure also derives from the close reading of drawings, combining information from the plan and the section, which leads to a blossoming of the design structure in the mind. This blossoming is similar to Duchamp's description of pleasure in the abstract geometric beauty generated in the mind while playing a game of chess, as he describes in the film in the gallery. I'm interested in how this attraction to rules, geometry and order, can coincide with a simultaneous compulsive desire for their excess and dissolution. This love of rules, combined with an urge to break, exceed, or expand them, is characteristic of Duchamp. His oeuvre includes meticulous and precisely drawn compositions, as in the large glass and given, as well as audacious and ironical attacks on the rule systems in art, for instance, in his ready-mades. In an interview, he described himself as a Cartesian, defroquet, a defrocked Cartesian that finds pleasure in logic and very close mathematical thinking, as well as getting away from it. So I would like to end with a quick list of images by practitioners throughout history who relate Duchamp either as a direct influence or le legacy, who use drawing with the same love of rules, but also an urge to break them 
and who reflect on the erotic nature of visuality and architecture through allegory. And I call them the defrocked Cartesians. First is the disputed right of Hypnerotomachia polyphily, an early Renaissance text accompanied by a woodcut drawing, narrating a love affair where the protagonist falls in love with architecture. Jean-François Niceron is a 17th century mini-monk practicing and theorizing anamorphosis, whose work Duchamp mentioned in his notes, and whose drawings are clearly an influence in the arrangement of Given. Jean-Jacques Lequeur is an 18th century architect draftsman, one of the proponents of architecture parlante. Philippe Dubois suggests that not only Duchamp was inspired by Lequeur's work, but he might have also tampered with some of the drawings, who are pornographic and are kept in the unfair of the Bibliothèque Nationale de France. Architect and theater an exhibition designer, Frederick Kissler, was contemporary and good friend of Duchamp. He produced architecturally conceived visual essays on his friend that include erotic connotations. And uncannily, his research project, Vision Machine, can be seen as a li missing link between Duchamp's large class and Given. Diller and Scofidio were commissioned to design a performance piece for the Duchamp Centennial and to prepare the research, the large glass to redrawing it. Here is a, a less known uh, drawing called Automayonette, or Juggler of Gravity from that work. And the allegorical project cited in New York by Oma that appear in the epilogue of Delirious New York were directly inspired by Surrealism and Duchamp. Madelon Wiesendorp's beguiling watercolors in the original publication present the towers of the city anthropomorphically in post-coital positions. Unlike the unfulfilled onanist desire in the large glass, the erotic encounter of the buildings gives birth to a new Manhattan. Most recent examples of defrocantisians include Neil Spiller's work, which draws highly from surrealism, but perhaps is an example of drawing that merges the erotic in Duchamp with the erotic in Dali. Not Charles meticulously crafted drawing instruments where he established the drawing medium with viscous paint and finds pleasure in chance. And Martina Marchignac's design for a palace of desire where the building itself becomes the seducer. Finally, I want to end with this provocative early postcard drawing by Bernard Chumi, which perhaps says it all. Thank you. Uh, our next speaker is Rosa Ferre. Um, Rosa Ferre is a philologist, and curator, and head of exhibition at the CCCB in Barcelona, which is the for those who have never visited it, is the Contemporary Center for Contemporary Culture of uh, Barcelona. Right. She held that position since 2012, um, and she has led a number of projects within this institution, combining artistic and cultural creation with scientific research and social innovation. Her personal research uh, work has focused on Russian art and culture uh, of the 20th and 21st centuries and have been translated into a number of publications and international exhibition projects. Among the exhibitions that Rosa has curated are Big Bandata, 
2015, uh, Human Plus, the future of our species in 2015 and 16, Metamorphosis, Fantasy Visions in Sterwich, Svank Major, and The Cave Brothers in 2014, Sebal Variation in 2015, After the End of the World, which had just opened, uh, at the CCB, and of course, 1,000 uh, square meters of desire, uh, which looks at the way Western society, uh, uh, how the, way West, the Western society has planned, built, and imagined spaces for sex from the 18th century to the present day. Uh, she will explain this project uh, now, uh, so please welcome Rosa Ferrer. Thank you for the invitation. I'm the co-curator of this exhibition together with uh, Delaide Carters, uh, who is the architect and a specialist in the 18th century, together with uh, Beatriz Colomina, that perhaps you know, she's a specialist in architect uh, architecture and media at Princeton University, and together with uh, Esther Fernandez, uh, who is a specialist in pornography and gender studies, and also with Marie-Francois Quignard, uh, who works at the Bibliothèque Nationale à Paris. And she is a specialist in uh, the Libertine project and uh, Libertine literature. So this is a very strange project uh, that joins a lot of people uh, coming, back, coming from very different backgrounds. The exhibition looks at the way Western society has planned, built, and imagined places for sex from the 18th century to the present day. Drawings, architectural models, artworks, installations, films, books, and other materials establish relationships that invite us to consider how sexualities are constructed in, accordan in accordance with a specific cultural code subject to norms that govern bodies and discourses. The exhibition takes as a starting point the obvious fact that the spaces invite us to behave in a particular manner. Sexual identification and sexual practices cannot be separated from the architectural spaces in which they take place. The first section of uh, 1,000 square meters of desire, 1,000 square meters is the size of our gallery, uh, is called uh, Sexual Utopias, and presents some, some of the projects that during these last three centuries have subverted traditional models dealing with forms of relationships other than the couple, the family, or monogamy, and which have invented new social spaces for sex in the cities or communities. The second section, Libertine Refuges, gathers uh, private realms con uh, conceived entirely a setting for pleasure, showing how there are mechanisms, codes, and atmospheres that act as driving forces for desire, that creates sensations that affects our senses and arouse them physically. The last chapter, Sexographs, Sexographers, uh, proceeds to work on temporality and presents some new speculative projects by architects and artists and also apps for all tastes, apps that have become the true spaces for sexual encounters today. Some of the works here reveal that the places used for non-heteronormative sexual practices have developed largely as a result of the informality and the appropriation of different spaces from parks to clubs, and almost never thanks to formal architecture. The exhibition helped us to understand how our sexual present has been and is still being built through technology and production consumption time. These are part of 
some of the artists, sorry, and the architects involved. Uh, many of the most interesting exhibits display are concentrated around the two sexual revolutions, the one that, look, that took place in the 18th century and the sexual revolution of the late 60s. Until the, 70, until the 17th century, sex outside marriage was illegal and people were punished for it. With Around uh, mid uh, 18th, uh, 17th century, there was a new way of thinking about the purpose of life, the greatness of sexual pleasure, and the role of sex in life. The libertine novels, in with, uh, with the materialistic philosophy of the time, and the theatry, theatry's uh, concerning sensations speak nothing else, speaks of nothing else. The gathering of population in the cities and the growth of urbanization provoke considerable changes in social behavior. It is at this precise moment when buildings became specialized and sophisticated, spaces and mechanisms were invented for libertine intrigues, secret passageways, hidden doors, spaces for intimate encounters such as boudoirs, dens, or grottos. Lacanian psychoanalyst uh, holds the view that sex never takes place just between just one or more other, just one or more others, but there is always an intruder. Our fantasy in the sexual act, there is always a narrative distance, meaning that we are a part of the scene and in in a way observers of it. Of it. The exhibition dis dis discourses our role as voyeurs when reading or looking at pornographic material and the way that fictional spaces have typified and become part of our collective imagination from the bucolic to the exotic, the disciplinary settings ranging from luxurious to the transgressive. The belief that architecture is a substantial part of our sexual fantasies is fundamental in the discourse of the exhibition and is the reason why we have accorded so much importance to fiction. To start with the chapter Sexual Utopias, the 18th century offered a plethora of special and sexual, and sexual utopias. We will see Claude Nicolas Ledoux blueprint for a temple of pleasure, the Kema, in his ideal city, the Salt Works of Shaw. Or Nicolas Retif de La Breton, imaginary network of state brothels in his novel, The Pornograph. And the Marquise de Sade, um, prototypes for houses of uh, pleasure. Retif, Ledoux, and Sad had faith in the transformative capacity of architecture and buildings, whether to monitor and reform customs or to free them completely. The figure of uh, Jeremy Bentham and his proposal for a surveillance building, the Panopticon, loomed large over many projects of the time. The Panopticon I has seen that sees everything in order to keep watch and punish is also the eye that keeps watch and takes pleasure. The eye that sees without being saying is the sense of pornography. Uh, the exhibition calls for a reading, a re-reading of Charles Fourier and his radical and imaginative utopian pleasure community based, based in phalansteries. At the beginning of the 20th, 19th century, he proposed a program of economic development and social transformation based on the recognition and satisfaction of all individual patients, a sexual paradise of self-fulfillment, -ful which he called harmony. 
In harmony, the pleasures are a matter of state, he claimed. Fourier's Palace City is a building or set of buildings for socialization and collective luxury, whose model is in Paris, in the cover galleries of the Louvre uh, and in the lively arcades of the Palais Royal. It is an unfinished palace that needs to be flexible, transformed by its different uses. The street gallery of the phalanstery is the most important feature of the Palace of Harmony. Uh, is in, of the Palace of uh, Harmony. They were used to articulate the space, the sp this, the space by connecting the apartments with the stables, uh, vegetable gardens, public rooms, and workshops. They provide a prime space for meeting and were an architectural element closely linked to the program of social transformation. Also, also of considerable interest for us are the projects that trust in a building or a special construction as a transformative machine for connecting. Following in Fourier's footsteps, footsteps uh, we establish a certain continuity with more contemporary utopias. From the modus vivendi of hippie communities, they are not here, the hippie communities, um, like uh, Drop City, to the visionary projects and the radical architecture of the 20th century uh, with figures like uh, Ettore Sotsas, uh, Archigram Superstudio, Rem Colas, uh, or the building Walden by Ricardo Borfil, Taller de Arquitectura, which is this. Here you see the windows that he called the vagina windows, and also the galleries that are really in the, in the way of Fourier. The exhibition also seeks to put the spotlight in, on the visionary work of Nicolas Schoffer, who was closely associated with the Situationist and part of the French radical architecture movement in the 60s. He designed an utopian city, the Ville Cybernetique, which contained its own center for sexual leisure, a vast installation that a uh, vast installation in our exhibition recreates this space, this space made for sex, bolts, dancing, cybernetic sculptures, and perfume. This is an image of the exhibition, of the installation. In 1972, the Italian designer and architect Ettore Sotsas imagined a future society without workforces in which the obsolete cities disappear, shallow up by nature, where machines were everything by them, uh, where, where machines make everything by themselves in perpetual circles, and goods are distributed at the request of the consumers. For this planet as a festival, Sotsas designed pergolas to discuss under, a dispenser for opium and lothing gas, and a temple for erotic dances, that you can see here. Um, to perform and to watch. The read proceeds according to a slow process of concentration and lighting, which gradually leads to the deepest and most liberating knowledge of, one, of one's own sexuality, he says. We go to the second chapter uh, that we call Libertine Refugees, that goes to, to the, we, we go to the city, to the, to the 
interiority of the buildings. From the French aristocracy, petite maisons of the 18th century, with the rooms, decor, and special furnishing, to the bachelor park suggested by Playboy magazine, the projects exhibited in this section show the role of architecture as a sensual experience. Beyond the specific fashions of each era, uh, era the refuge shows the repetition of mechanisms and codes, such as, for instance, attached for secret, hiding places, grottos and folies, optical illusions and voyeuristic devices. Here you see the drawings of, um, of uh, Pierre-Adrien Paris. Uh, he built uh, female structures for uh, Louis XVI uh, and Marie Antoinette, including a theater, the settings for ceremonies and barrooms, Paris uh, palatial designs, and ephemeral architecture are emblematic of the great momentum given to the specialization in pleasure and creation of intimacy introduced by the Regency, which la lasted until the revolution. This section uh, features also a reading room, a cabinet containing libertine novels that show uh, how architecture and storytelling joined forces during the 18th century in a game of mutual seduction. Devised by the specialist Marie-Francois Quignard from the, uh, from the National Library in Paris, it features novels by Nessiat, Crevillon, Laclos, and De Sade, among others. The Liberty novel has a single, single objective, to celebrate desire and the enjoyment of the body. Entering the, Libertine, entering the Libertine chamber is going into the atmosphere of enclosed places, into boudoirs, convent cells, or brothels, where we follow the narrator, the clandestine observer, while the story unfolds. The sad acts uh, the dungeon as a space for punishment to this repertoire. The section, uh, sorry, we uh, resisted some fragments of these libertine tales. For example, the sofa, the le sofa de Crevillon Fils, uh, where uh, the main character, having led a dissolute life, has his soul condemned to inhabit a series of sofas. And as a sofa, he explains the secrets of the boudoirs. This is an image of the entrance in the cabinet. Um, also, we present here two iconic novels, The Petit Maison and Point de l'Andemagne, No Tomorrow, and The Little House. Both are the story of seduction through a special, a special uh, journey. The, late, the later, uh, Point de l'Andemagne, is particularly striking so far as the entire strategy is devised by the female protagonist. Architecture and its artifices are instruments that enable fantasies to, do, to be staged. For this cabinet, we have constructed a model, a very interesting theatrical scene of the Marquis de Sade Salo, uh, or the 120 Days of Sodom. Uh, here you have uh, the inner part of the cabinet. We, we show some originals, all them illustrated. And uh, all the tales that we presented uh, were special, uh, of a special interest in how architecture uh, is the motion of the action of the tales. This is the, we did this, this model for, for uh, Sades. And also we had some uh, drawings uh, from um, Leque that uh, Penelope talked about. 
<coughs> in the exhibition, we skip all the time the 19th century. Uh, so, uh, talking about uh, um, libertine refuges, uh, we, we, we pass to Adolf Loos. The architect Adolf Loos, uh, to a certain extent, prolonged the tradition of the spaces for intimacy and sensory experiences that characterized the 18th century. The pleasures of his architecture are both tactile and visual. The aptic sensuality of his interiors culminating in the bedroom he designed uh, for his uh, first wife in 1903, uh, Lina, as if it were a full lean case. In uh, 1927, Lost dreamed up a Parisian house for Josephine Baker that included a cafe for social meetings and in the center, a swimming pool that could only be seen from particular places, special for the window in a small living room, which functioned as a peep show. The project was never realized, but Loss considered it one of the most successful of his most uh, successful designs. We have made a model, we did a model uh, and a virtual view of this house. We show also some of the interiors created by the Italian architect Carlo Molino in the late 30s uh, as another example of highly theatrical spaces. His surrealistic interiors decorated by fabric, pink, red, purple, velvet, exotic fours, silks and mirrors just opposite with his furniture designs and objects, including plaster molds of archaeological fragments created an enigmatic atmosphere especially his, the, the, Bal, the Valle house, um, a kind of fashion of part designed for his friend and architect, Giorgio de Valle, de Valle, or the Miller house, uh, which he used as a photography studio, where, where he shot the famous Polaroids discovered after his death that revealed his singular sensibility. They represent women in different erotic settings, careful planet by Molino himself, and in clothes, shows, uh, jewelry, and accessories from his own collection. We had some of these Polaroids in the exhibition. Uh, Beatriz Colomina uh, proposed a mini exhibition inside the exhibition about Playboy. The Playboy installation that goes from uh, 1953 to 1979, curated by Colomina, explores how Playboy's influenced in popularizing modernism and at the same time the crucial role that played modern, modern architecture in constructing the Playboy imaginary, a universe of radical interiority and total environments that sustain the art of the seduction. Playboy's thesis for seduction connect with 18th century. In the popular Playboy progress that you see, we see the degrees for, sedu for seduce a woman along a path in the space achieved by means of painstaking and calculated misunderstanding. Uh, before I, I show you uh, the plan of La Petite Maison, which is also, uh, which is a novel of a seduction, and, and there are a lot of connections between these two uh, plans. The section shows how Playboy mobilized modern architecture to shape a new sexual and consumer identity for the American male, transforming him into a sophisticated overnight. Dream apartments, sexy chairs, round beds, futuristic lamps, sophisticated hi-fi equipment, buying guides and interviews with designers provided irresistible, irresistible inspiration. From the very first issue, features on major designers 
like uh, Frank Lloyd um, Wright, Mies van der Rohe, Soleri, but Mr. Fuller were used to glamorize modern architecture culture. What the Playboy phenomenon reveals is that uh, heterosexual masculinity is far from being natural. That is too uh, constructed cultural code. The magazine funded by Hugh Hefner publicized a new way for wealthy bachelors to, bachelors to experience the domestic spa space, how to create an apartment that could serve as a seductive trap in contrast with the traditional model of the monogamous family uh, nest designed to the purpose of reproduction and managed by the wife. Treating women as buildings and uh, treating women and buildings as objects of fantasy and desire, Playboy designed a new identity for men. Spread this architecture that was survived in the form of collective desire through to the through to the present day and contributed definitively to the transformation of, of intimacy in public spectacle. We 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 presented. Um, sorry. We presented uh, also a model of the of the bed, uh, the famous Playboy, Playboy bed of Hugh Hefner's, and also a model of the Buni, the most uh, luxurious private aircraft, aircraft, and and also uh, many materials uh, of the houses popularized by the magazine as John Lodner's uh, Elrod House, uh, Mati Suronen Future House, and Anne Farm, the house of the century. This is the pet. Okay. The exhibition presents also the technological sensorial new folies and my expander, mind expanders for the 60s and 70s, like the Sweet Alone Bubble by Archigram, the Coupe Himmelblau pneumatic living unit, and the house rooker co yellow heart. We establish uh, all the time in the exhibition connections uh, between uh, 18th century and, and the revolutionary uh, architecture of the 18th century and the 60s and 70s. Um, the last section uh, is called sexographs, and I think that I, we, we could talk about this uh, in the conversation. It's, uh, we talk about uh, appropriation in the cities, uh, semi-public um, spaces for sex, and also uh, we study uh, virtual reality and the role of apps in as spaces themselves in our contemporary. Yeah. <laughs> Well, after like the last two presentations with um, the wonderful like research by Penelope and the uh, exhibition by by Rosa, now we are moving into a practitioner whose work is like very influenced by eroticism. Uh, uh, Nigel Coates uh, is an architect and designer based in London. His subversive spirit first came to public attention in 1984 when he founded NATO, Narrative Architecture Today at both Architecture Group and uh, Eponymous Magazine. With his first architectural commission in Japan in 1985, he founded Branson Coates Architecture. Um, and this project was followed by many other architectural projects, including the Jeffrey Museum in London and the Body Zone in the Millennium Dome, amongst many others. 
1995 to 2011, Nigel was head of the Department of Architecture at the Royal College of Art, where he is currently a professor emeritus. In 2012, he was recognized with the Annie Spink Award for his outstanding contribution to architectural education. He has also published uh, number, numerous books, including Guide to Ecstasy in 2003, Kaleidoscope in 2004, and uh, more recently, Narrative Architecture in 2012. His provocative work, uh, both in architecture and industrial design, is widely influenced by eroticism, as I said, and in his presentation, he will be explaining some of his projects, both in architecture and industrial design. Please welcome Nigel. Well, as Gonzalo said, thank you, Gonzalo, for introducing me. Um, I'm a practitioner, and while the screen is blank, I'd just like to say to you that as a gay man, uh, when I studied architecture at the Architectural Association, it was definitely taboo to mention anything about your sexuality in relation to your work. In fact, I'd been taught to design using very, very hard pencils. You know, they had to be 3H at least, and you had to draw things very precisely. And if I look back at my sketchbooks from those days, the writing is very small and tight. And uh, I'd say the work itself was uptight. However, I had uh, seen films by Pasolini and Visconti, and uh, uh, later Derek Jarman, and I realized that it wasn't so dreadful to put some of yourself into your work. And gradually, I discovered uh, uh, a way of working which doesn't denote sexual or erotic architecture as some of the works we've seen, particularly in the 18th century, but more connotes, not necessarily only trying to convey uh, these architectural ideas to similarly gay people, but I would say that as a, a gay man, I have the right to be able to uh, consider my sexuality as a, a general kind of sexuality that is available to everybody because we are all sexual in some ways. So I don't really distinguish in anything that I'm going to show you necessarily between whether they're gay or not. Um, so, I too am very influenced by Carlo Molino. Uh, after the first project I did for a ski station, which I did with my students in Bennington College in uh, upstate in Vermont uh, in around 1980, I found myself trying to draw uh, and, and imagine architecture in a sensual form. In fact, uh, in around 1980, the art world in New York, where I was living as well as in, in Bennington, was possessed by uh, the trans avant-garde. And many of those artists were beginning to use a different kind of painting and drawing and kind of expression. It was a kind of new expressionism. And at first, I was influenced by this expressionistic way of drawing. I thought, you know, that can be an architecture too. I did a project which featured 
people skiing. I wanted the, my building in this project to express the feeling of skiing. In fact, throughout my career, I pursued a phenomenological way of looking at architecture. I was a, uh, a student of Bernard Chumi, and about this time, Bernard would say, but you know, uh, I think you're an impressionist, really. And I would say to him, but I think you're a Cartesian rationalist. So we had a little bit of a, you know, a frisson about the theoretical and, uh, and how the theoretical could cross over into what you felt when you walked into a space. Anyhow, to go back to Molino, uh, um, an Italian magazine called Modo published this project. And uh, the writer, uh, Marco Tremarchi, he said to me, after it had been published, do you know Carlo Molino? I said, no, I'd never heard of Carlo Molino. He wasn't discussed at the AA. But of course, when I realized how similar his preoccupations were to mine, that he enjoyed a kind of sensual expressionism, that he loved furniture, that he could create uh, intriguing spaces. And it's for that reason that I show you this, the Casa da Valle, which was one of his many small apartments in Torino. And uh, it's impossible, really, to show you in one photograph the complexities of this space. But what I'd like to point out to you is that what you see in a mirror is not necessarily physically there. The, the play of mirrors and surfaces, of capitone walls, of uh, objects that catch your attention from one, by glancing from one space to another, are a bit like the Playboy setups. They're there to encourage a kind of uh, an, an awareness of the occupant or occupants as to how they're moving through space. They are kind of presaging a sensuality of space, which I, uh, I think is um, key to understanding the erotic, the possible erotic nuance uh, that can, architecture can be invested with. So please look uh, at, uh, at uh, Carlo Molino's Casa da Valle. They were indeed, these little apartments were indeed micro, opera sets for his own uh, photographs of, uh, of women that he would uh, encourage home with him late at night. Many of them were starlets in the theater. They weren't necessarily prostitutes. He had a garments in the cupboard that he would get them to wear. So he, he'd kind of planned all this ahead of time. And uh, um, I guess for him, and I, this is the most wonderful thing is that his own existence, his own desires, and the spaces he made truly crossed over. I'm going to show you a couple of pieces of furniture here. Uh, one is a very overt uh, piece that I did for a show at the ICA, I think in 1989, uh, where uh, some 30 of us were asked to exhibit a piece of furniture. and. Um, this was my piece. People were doing thrones in those days, huge pieces of kind of wood, and you know, that was the time of uh, Tom Dixon, Creative Salvage, and all of that. But 
this piece was um, meant to capture uh, uh, a feeling. It's called the genie stool because if you rub it, it kind of um, it comes alive. And the spiraling is a bit like the smoke, the, the, the vapor that comes out of Aladdin's lamp. But of course, when you sit on it, and it's quite, I should have brought one this evening, but it's quite difficult to sit on. But when you kind of are nestled into it, it is quite a sensual artifact. With two pieces of wood, one that, that is a bit like the, your hip bone, and the other piece like the sometimes bone in the front, and uh, they come together on this single object. And on the right uh, is the chair that I designed. Uh, it was introduced into the Fornacetti range very late because Piero Fornacetti, although he was obsessed with erotic uh, nuance, um, he never really designed any upholstery to speak of. So Barnaba Fornacetti, his son, asked me to do a range of furniture, and this is the so-called um, uh, uh, Bachamano, kiss the hand. And it has a, um, a cushion which has a Fornacetti uh, um, uh, pattern, uh, which is the backside of the woman, and you can flip the cushion to be the front side. So you can choose which way around you want to connect. Uh, but they're both about sitting. And a sitting, of course, is a, I'm not suggesting that you're sitting on the chair that you've got in here is an erotic experience. However, there is erotic potential in chairs. And I uh, have explored that quite a lot. Um, as I guess I, I, like many Italian architects, I uh, enjoy designing furniture and work with quite a lot of Italian companies. But a few years ago, I did a show in Milan during the Salon del Mobile, uh, which was called Casa Reale. And it occupied a, 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 a falling apart apartment at the back of a gallery in the center of the city. And I created an imaginary world. Casa Reale was the idea of the environment for a king who was on benefits, who no longer had a kingdom. So in this poor environment, uh, I kind of built up a narrative of uh, the kinds of furniture that he would either like or he brought with him from other places. And in this particular vignette, which was in the garage, that opened onto the, uh, onto the um, courtyard at the back of the gallery. This you might recognize as, as connected to Francis Bacon and to some of his portraits, particularly of George Dyer, uh, in which there is a, a kind of fluid, uh, uh, the, the, the representation of the body is as a, a, a kind of dynamic being invested with what Bacon called puissance, a kind of extra uh, fleshy kind of sensuality. So in this image, I was making a lamp, a mirror, a chair, and a carpet. And I set it against a backdrop which uh, has the same uh, visual structure as many of, um, of Bacon's paintings. But unlike the painting, I wanted to draw 
the thing out into space. And although in the exhibition itself there was no naked man sitting on this throne, um, uh, for uh, little films uh, that we, we did in the setting, uh, um, some of which are still around online, um, though we enacted uh, how the, um, the king on benefits would uh, interact with this space. Flipping scale completely, um, this is a project from uh, 1984 when Mrs. Thatcher uh, succeeded in closing down um, County, County Hall. And it's part of an exhibition called Arc Albion. And there isn't specific reference to the body there. But the idea was to semi-dismantle County Hall and make it accessible to people who could come in and out of it. And I have this notion that the city itself is a thriving, eroticized, physically uh, sensual environment that is um, uh, given this dimension by the mere fact that people live and move through it. And I've kind of done many versions of cities in which there is the hint of erotic content, such as this drawing for Vogue magazine, which was looking at what London might be like in, in um, 75 years' time from when the drawing was done. So I think this would be in 2066. The building strangely looked rather, I did this drawing in maybe 19, 90. So they look uh, remarkably like some of the buildings in the city of London already, so I don't know what that says. Uh, and then um, uh, I did this uh, exhibition at the Architectural Association called Exeter um, uh, City, which has become uh, a, a, a kind of manifesto in one word, the possibility that there can be an ecstatic dimension to cities. And I've kind of taken that into um, many different installations, such as this one at uh, Tate Modern that was part of the um, Future Cities exhibition in 2007. Um, and then moving to some built stuff. This is a building of mine in Tokyo, which is called uh, the Art Silo. And in this drawing, which is done to communicate with the client, to tell the client what the nuances and possibilities of this building are, you can see on the left-hand side, there's the outline of a, of a figure, which gives a sort of anthropomorphic, anthropomorphic comparison with the tall building. I mean, incidentally, the building on the right is also mine. I've got two buildings in Tokyo, and they're both next to each other. But I want to you know, emphasize that in, uh, in configuring space and moving from space to space, moving through a door from one room into another, is potentially a, 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 a situation that can induce a kind of frisson. And in my kind of, in my Jeffrey Museum new wing, that's very apparent because as you come out of the old buildings on the left, you move across a kind of open space and then you go into the uh, new wing itself. The two ends of the new wing are kind of closed together like the two points of a, the two, um, extremes of a magnet, and you have to move between those two extremes, and it's that moving between in that kind of, in that squeezed space 
that I think there is a, a kind of hint of uh, the erotic potential. That's true in my pop museum in Sheffield, which is now uh, Sheffield Hallam Students' Union. But you, the, the whole building is pre-configured on moving between these drums to actually make you feel a very kind of special condition by going into the building. And that was true in the, in the bodies in the Millennium Dome also, where you would go between this man, woman, mid-gender, whatever it was, you would actually enter between the two bodies and explore the, um, the various aspects of their bodies. Uh, I'm going to very briefly mention an installation at the Venice Biennale 2008 where I asked the curator, Aaron Betsky, what he wanted me to focus on. He said, sex. <laughs> so uh, I did a circular space, eight meters across, with continuous projections all the way around, where I got two male dancers to perform architecture. So they performed the beginning of architecture, the building of architecture, and its collapse and they were you know, brought together in what really is a very classical room with furniture pieces and uh, this uh, diorama, which was not unlike the uh, frescoes in a typical uh, uh, Venetian palace. I just want to point out that the furniture was all based on saddles. I think a saddle is a really erotic object, not in, not to say riding a horse as a, an erotic experience. You can see some of the movie behind, uh, and in the center of the space was a group of chandeliers. I'm having some trouble with the connection. Oh, well. <laughs> are, you, are you on grinder? <laughs> the, the, um, the chandeliers have got some rather interesting little models of buildings. In fact, they're floating cities. And I made some of the models of buildings out of leather. And they're stuffed leather um, in quite um, uh, body-like shapes. And of course, that works with the, um, the saddle. And this is a new iteration of the saddle in the exhibition at the Triennale called Karma, Sex and Design. And again, the reference to Bacon with um, triptych with the mirrors. And I don't know if you ever noticed, but in, in Bacon's studio, there was a circular mirror that he actually had designed because he used to be an interior designer. And he still had this mirror. And then he had a light bulb hanging, a bare light bulb. So I, I've always been fascinated by these two artifacts and then all the chaotic mess on the floor of squeezed out, half squeezed out tubes of color and newspapers and kind of tearings with uh, uh, press cuttings with uh, boxers and all of that. Um, but in this piece, uh, we were able to do something quite special with a very primitive court form of augmented reality, where we had uh, three iPads on a, on a table, and visitors could pick up an iPad. And if they picked up their iPad, they could see naked people enacting 
these, uh, these artifacts. And um, in fact, the one person thought it was so real, they were looking at the, pe at the naked people going around these objects, that they looked around to make sure that they weren't really there. But anyway, they weren't. They were so, isn't that interesting that you can make settings that can actually suggest eroticism, but there's nobody actually there. It's like the, the throne room at Buckingham Palace with no king or queen sitting on the thrones. You know that those thrones are there for the king and the queen. I'm just going to finish with just some, a few very kind of, uh, uh, I'm not going to go into great depth, but this is one of my current projects. Uh, it's an entirely an, a project of the mind, definitely not to be built. Uh, Re-examining Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens, which is certainly not a very pleasurable uh, uh, um, feast for the eyes if you're really interested in architecture. It's got the ghastly St. George Wharf that I, with a tower that I think looks like a turkey baster. And there's uh, uh, Terry Farrell's MI5 or 6 building. Anyway, I wanted to re-look at uh, Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens as a, uh, a public garden where people would pay um, uh, a shilling to go in and be wined and dined and entertained with kind of canoodling in the, in the bushes on the edge of the gardens. Well, if you go there now, there are a couple of gay clubs there, but there's a really very poorly, uh, a poor evocation of the Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens in, the, in a kind of enlarged public lawn in the middle of it. The, this drawing is sort of looking at some of the components that I'm trying to, I'm introducing into this part of London that include uh, references to the giant body. In fact, this is based on David, Michelangelo's David except it goes a little bit further than that because it's got a lookout tower in the middle. Uh, um, and the Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens itself, I've kind of captured in this motif of a knot of paths. Uh, this is up closer to uh, the Michelangelo's David reworked by me via kind of digital models of him. And it's now a kind of night world hotel. And on the right is an egg egg uh, cart, which is part of a whole kind of housing complex of unaffordable housing. <laughs> and some, of, some activities in the park, I think, are architectural because of the people that are doing these activities. In fact, this is my favorite architectural drawing because there's no architecture in it. And just to kind of uh, whet your appetite to go and visit this imaginary place, there are various pavilions throughout which uh, merge architecture, uh, kind of Paul McCarthy-esque kind of giant figures. And uh, these are intended to invite inventive behavior by the visitors. So thank you. So what I would like to, to do is like throw in a couple of questions to, to you. There are like a couple of thoughts that I've been like 
that have been in, in the back of my head like during your, all your presentations. Uh, so we can allow also like some time for, for questions from the audience. The first one, it will be like, what is the erotic today? The concept of what, what, what is erotic or uh, has changed uh, over the year because we consider pornographic at a certain point and you were explaining, Rosa, that um, had changed and, and now this sexual liberation that have been like defining certain moments of his or recent history have completely changed about that. How do you think this has impact uh, the the architecture, contemporary architecture, and what is uh, what is the eroticism in contemporary architecture? I'd say. I think that probably nowadays we're not necessarily in a period of erotic liberation. It probably is the opposite. I would say that it might be closing down rather than opening up. Um, and I think that what is really interesting is that perhaps, um, I really enjoyed your description of this idea of essential uh, architecture, which I don't think many people talk about, or there are very, very few people that are actually engage with as an idea and want to express in their architecture. And I think that perhaps we're even moving further away from it. And um, uh, this kind of more technological dimension that we're entering uh, turns people away from space, from the sensuality of space, and even away from each other in a way. So I would say that perhaps it's not necessarily a very good time for sensuality in architecture, but it's greatly missed. And I think it would be good if, if more people would bring it to the foreground in the way that you have discussed. And we could re-eroticize society, no? I think that one of the important things that we discover during this exhibition, that the, the most important thing is that we, we managed to join many different uh, materials and we saw amazing connections between them. No? And uh, you see, uh, we, we tried to find uh, different things, but uh, the most interesting things were related with uh, 18th century uh, um, uh, moment and, and uh, all the Libertine project, and also related with the sexual revolution in the 60s no? or 70s, and the, all these speculative uh, uh, thinking in architecture and critique. Uh, and now uh, we, we, we work with uh, contemporary artists and designers and architects. The, the problem that appears all the time is that uh, people uh, have no time for... Uh, the time is uh, or for production or for consumption. And you know, there is something that I love, of an English po uh, quote of an English poet that I love, that is uh, Lord Rochester, that says that uh, there is something uh, really generous in uh, last, you know, to, to, to play with sex and to spend time, you need to have the time for that. No? And we're in a moment of uh, total acceleration uh, and we are all the time or in a producing moment, also in producing in, in, in your computer co-producing pornography or no because everything is online or you are in the consumption moment no so the, for me this one this thing is really important to understand which is a present moment uh, probably like this love of criticality in like uh, contemporary architecture practice that it's also leading to this 
missing uh, eroticism in the uh, in, in architecture today? What do you think, uh, I Nigel? Think I think architects are unable to articulate the the erotic dimension of their work. I mean, I'm not saying that every tower is a phallic symbol, mm. but it's hard not to imagine that Norman Foster doesn't think about sex now. <laughs> he isn't he married to a. a a very voluptuous Spanish, Spanish woman. Yeah. Sexology. <laughs> Sexology. Yeah. Um, uh, not very sexy. It's just not, it's not spoken about, which is kind of absurd. And th that's partly why I, I mean, I just try to keep, I know it doesn't sound right from what I'm showing you, but I still think of my own work as relatively subtle. It's not pornography, it's not in your face, it's, it's understated. And the reason it's understated is because it has more power like that than being overstated. If it's just a hint, it's much more likely to be taken up. So I guess much of my thinking is, is, is based on the psychology of, of space as I see it and I've studied it and understand it, that people don't take the message on board if it's kind of pushed in, in your face they're much more likely to take it on board if it's gradual, if it's, uh, if, if it's a slow release kind of communication, which I think architecture is best at. You know, the architecture of the object that is a duck or a, uh, the human figure or a cock, all of that, to me, it doesn't really work. It doesn't produce an erotic effect. In fact, the one, the Ledoux plan of you know uh, a, a building with a cock at the center of it is it would have been totally imperceptible to the people who actually yeah. visited it yeah. and you know equally you can say that Versailles is a woman with the legs apart or whatever you know there are there is a nuance because the very act acts of sex have a spatial dimension of kind of an, an, an a dynamic one. They're not just symbols, they're actually spaces and, and, and have dynamic relations which are part of the, 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 the sexual um, metaphor for, for architecture and vice versa. There is other thing that uh, we, I, I try to talk about is the informal architecture meaning appropriation of spaces uh, like or in public spaces like the beaches or uh, parks, etc., or uh, which are like uh, codificated or uh, semi-public like uh, saunas or this kind of uh, spaces with uh, a special uh, spirit, no? And uh, they are all disappearing, meaning the people is uh, using apps for a meeting and uh, nobody's going to these places anymore. But I think that uh, this uh, will bring a reaction or something like that for new connection again, no? because you, you can go to parties, you, you can see where, is the, where there is an orgy or a big party and you can participate or doing these kind of things. No? But I think that uh, there is a, like a contra of uh, an, an, a new mm, uh, erasing of uh, spaces for for meeting, no? 
I, I would like to raise the, the gender issue because like, oh, I think except in Madelon, all the uh, architects and designers that, that you mentioned uh, across your presentation, they were all male. Obviously, architecture have been like a quite male dominant, uh, dominant uh, profession. Uh, do you think that has an impact, has had an impact into the kind of erotic dimension of, our, uh, of architecture? Well, for sure, because they were in control, weren't they? But, you know, when you think about the work of Zaha Hadid or Amanda Levitt, they're both, they're both charged with erotic kind of suggestion. And perhaps Zaha wouldn't accept many of, many of the interpretations of her work, most notably the stadium in Qatar. But uh, Amanda does. Amanda, see, can, you know, a fireplace can be a slit or you know, the, 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 an entrance to a building can have uh, a nuance of um, erotic qualities. So isn't that just simply because there weren't female architects or you know, the, the, uh, that culture generally was dominated by men? But straight men at that, by the mm -hmm. way. Yeah, uh, let's jump to the question from the audience. So we have yeah, one question there. Hi. Um, <coughs> hi, Nigel. Um, female architect. Um, I, I loved some of the references. It's fantastic to see Carlo Molino, Lowe's, uh, the, the Playboy culture. Obviously, a great deal of what we're talking about at the moment to do with seduction is very clouded by Harvey Weinstein and everything that's going on in the news at the moment. And I, you just touched on it briefly, this idea that the way that people experience seduction very much in the city in particular is using apps like Tinder. Um, and this idea that you can actually locate people um, using an app in two dimensions. I, I enjoyed very much, Nigel, what you were saying about taking time. Seduction is about the reveal and the time that it takes. And I think that uh, as architects, we, we have a duty to make buildings and cities that actually slow this whole process down to ensure that people experience, if you will, that... Uh, erotic pleasure of taking time. Um, I, that was what I wanted to say. And maybe, in, maybe in spaces that they live in or they work in or you know, not necessarily places to go and have sex, which is a whole other discourse about nightclubs and you know, whether they are relevant anymore and all of that. But, I, but we live in architecture, so there's you know, they've got to be potential beyond uh, the explicit. Absolutely, yeah. That, that rather than rather than talking about places to explicitly meet, it's actually in the casual moment that you might come across. Well, there was an interesting image in the in the Fear and Love exhibition at the um, at the Design Museum, where there are a couple of guys lying around, and they've got the messages that are coming in on their grinder uh, um, from their grinder apps. 
and it was very like the Playboy thing. So that the home, I think, I really do believe that the home is often devised uh, today in order to to perform well for your um, for your uh, encounters and exploits. And you, Sally McKerith, are an expert on the sofa, <laughs> which of course is a, a place of erotic encounter. Um, hello. Um, I was really intrigued by how it was, like, also talking about the conversation about gender in architecture and um, the whole presentation that we had, the whole presentations that we had uh, tonight. Um, I'm realizing through your um, slides that a lot of um, what is perceived as sensual architecture or uh, eroticism in architecture is more Focratic. Um, and I'm wondering if that's because um, we are focusing a little bit too much on the concept of the male gaze and male sexuality and male arousal, which is based on visual um, um, in, uh, stimuli. Uh, so I was wondering if there are any references through your research as like um, practitioners and researchers that have been investigating this subject where um, you have a female perspective on this, like if there are any um, documentation, uh, even in modern times where feminism um, became stronger of uh, what would essential space feel like um, through the eyes of a woman, let's say, or the senses of a woman. This is um, a quite complex uh, conversation, and I, I actually have uh, reflected upon this relationship of gender, especially as uh, a female looking at the male's uh, erotic uh, projections um, and I think it's a quite complex issue um, the way that I understand it is that um, the female sexuality is not that visual or it's not visual in the same way that male uh, sexuality is really? <laughs> <laughs> it's not in the same way but strangely enough I think um, uh, it's something that I didn't really touch upon, but uh, because I'm really looking at the, the way that uh, given is constructed as a visual structure. And in a way, I have a feeling that uh, what Duchamp was trying to do, uh, but this, what I'm going to say now is a typical thing of what Duchamp does. Like, he gives you these things and whoever engages with his work just projects whatever they want to exactly. see in it. I, exactly, what and I was so talking about. And so the way that I see it is actually as a, a female gaze. Um, and a lot of people, it's not just me, a lot of people have talked about how um, the way that the whole thing works, it's as if, because you cannot really see the female body's gaze, and it's as if she's caught within her own daydream. So. There is also something about female sexuality that might actually also project the female form, the don't self form. Think, don't you think that all interiors have a connection with the female, not gaze, but the female situation? Yeah, I agree. And it's this kind of closeness. It's, uh, it's, it's not the flat image that is far away, 
but is the binocular vision that is the closer up and, and, and what that they, surrounds yeah, you. And the objects, and the closer that you are to an object, uh, attracts you more, because binocular vision is not uh, homogenous. The closer you are to something, the more it sucks you in. Uh, the, the, the same object further away has a different behavior, and it's something that we're not really fully aware of. And I think that Duchamp was actually trying to show that through a really pornographic... No, yeah, he was also experimenting with his own gender fluidity, wasn't exactly. he? Exactly, because I think that somehow throughout his work, he doesn't really assume uh, only a kind of male position, but he has this dialogue with this, between these two positions, which I think that for him is also the, the site of creativity. It's a conversation between these two positions, call it female, male, or, but it's this attraction between a seducer and a seduced. And I think that creativity uh, for him and in general, creativity, I think, operates as this kind of dialogue between two. But I think we have to get beyond this gaze, you know, the male gaze, and actually say that all people have a sexual aspect to their occupation of space and sensibility. It's just that that has been the, the, the female side of things has been historically suppressed, but there's nothing we can do about that. That's the way it is. Yeah. You can analyze it and unpack it and understand it, but surely are we really occupying such different worlds in this time? I might say also something quite controversial, that we, we keep talking about the male gaze as something which is unwanted, but it's also <laughs> very wanted at other times. And I think that's something that uh, is also something that needs to be talked about a little bit sometimes. <laughs> you want to make any comment? Uh, we, we did a research uh, that is a totally different thing, but talking about research in the exhibition, we did a research about pornography and how women and men uh, react to pornography and uh, we we made a dialogue with a girl in Barcelona who has a, like a um, film um, production house, and she pretends to do porno for women. No, and then at the same time in the debate we we um, talk to post porno punk uh, people. No. And the debate was uh, really <laughs> interesting, no? And uh, and at the end, uh, one of the interesting things for me uh, were that uh, now many women consume uh, pornography, and uh, when people is pretending to do uh, like soft pornography for for women, doesn't work, uh, as uh, we can we 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 saw a little bit in uh, in our investigation. Because uh, pornography, in pornography, you don't want to to be realistic. You you need uh, something different to you, and and then uh, woman doesn't want. For example, this girl uh, made uh, amazing uh, sets, like uh, because uh, porno is uh, some, sometimes uh, doesn't care. No, it doesn't take care of the uh, scenography or whatever. No, and then she does like. Uh, 
super nice uh, 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 sets. No? And uh, I think that this doesn't work, no? for example, to, to talk about uh, this. Yeah, it's clear that like, in terms of gender, society is changing everything, it's not just now like female or male, that, that will have also like an impact. Also like the, the, the fact that women are now being more uh, noisy and more uh, uh, present in the, in the architectural profession obviously will have a change. And as this lady in the, in the public, in the audience, uh, she said obviously like the, the impact of digital technology will have also a, a, an impact on, on on the way we face uh, eroticism in, in, in architecture, and how we explore the city and through these digital platforms that are moving this sexuality from the, uh, the physical world to the virtual world. Now please a big applause to our three speakers. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.